Well, if you turn with me for the very last time to the book of 1 Kings. This is our last chapter here in this great book of 1 Kings. Never fear, after a short break, we will come back to 2 Kings and hear, as Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story. But for now, we have the Lord's word to us from 1 Kings 22. What I'd like to do is begin by reading through the first 12 verses, focus our thoughts, and then as we come to the appropriate time, I will re go through, reread the next section of the chapter so that we can keep on track. So let us now seek the Lord's blessing upon the reading and hearing of His Word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that You would enlighten our minds, that You would renew our wills, that we might not only hear Your Word, but that we might obey it. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord that is holy, inerrant, sufficient, and authoritative. 1 Kings chapter 22. For three years, Syria and Israel continued without war. But in the third year, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, came down to the king of Israel. And the king of Israel said to his servants, Do you know that Ramoth Gilead belongs to us? And we keep quiet? And do not take it out of the hand of the king of Syria. And he said to Jehoshaphat, Will you go with me to battle at Ramoth Gilead? And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, Inquire first for the word of the Lord. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and said to them, Shall I go to battle against Ramoth Gilead, or shall I refrain? And they said, Go up, for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there not here another prophet of the Lord of whom we may inquire? And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah the son of Imlah, but I hate him, for he never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. And Jehoshaphat said, Let not the king say so. Then the king of Israel summoned an officer and said, Bring quickly Micaiah the son of Imlah. Now the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat the king of Judah were sitting on their thrones, arrayed in their robes at the threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria. And all of the prophets were prophesying before them. And Zedekiah, the son of Chenanah, made for himself horns of iron and said, Thus says the Lord, with these you shall push the Syrians until they are destroyed. And all the prophets prophesied so and said, Go up to Ramoth Gilead and triumph. For the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. Thus far the reading of God's word. May the Lord bless the reading and hearing of his word. Have you ever noticed that some people just don't get it? You know, you 
try to explain things, but they, they just don't get it. And it can get frustrating, can't it? There's an old skit that perhaps many of you know. It's with two comedians. And the name of the skit is the question, really, who's on first? And we hear, well, who's on first? What's on second? I don't know who's on third. And the question comes, well, who's on first? Exactly. Now, wait a minute. First base. Who? That's what I'm asking, right? Who's on first? Now, that's funny, and we emphasize with uh, the asker of the question, who's on first, for maybe the first couple of minutes. After a while, though, we're on to the game, and we get frustrated that he doesn't get it. That over and over again, and we know that you can even say the questions and answers before they're said, because you know where it's going. That kind of frustration... That kind of inability to see something that's before us is what we see here in the final chapter of 1 Kings. Because you see, this is really not just the first time that Ahab doesn't get it. It's actually not even the second time that he doesn't get it. This is the third time in three chapters. Chapters 20, 21, and 22. Strike 1, strike 2, strike 3. You are out, Ahab. God is telling us something here. He's telling us that we must listen to his word. And there's an additional note that's played here for us especially because it's not just that Ahab doesn't hear the word of the Lord. It's that the good king of Judah, Jehoshaphat, doesn't hear the word of the Lord. And it's only by God's mercy that he does not meet a similar fate. Well, let's look then at what the Lord has for us in 1 Kings 22. We're going to look at three things, three people, three sets of people. The first thing we're going to look at is an unbelieving people, people who do not believe the Word of God, shown to us in technicolor, but perhaps not in a way that we might expect. The second thing we'll see is the true messenger of God, a true messenger. So we have an unbelieving people set up over against a true messenger. And then finally, the main player on the stage makes himself known. The one who's driving the entire story, not just the story of Israel, not just the story of Judah, but the story of all life. And that is a sovereign God. So an unbelieving people, a true messenger, and a sovereign God. Let's look first at this unbelieving people. The scene opens here in Israel. And we might entitle the opening of this scene, Let's Go Fight a War. Ahab, it's as if he almost has nothing better to do. There's been peace for three years. He's so used to conflict. He actually comes and tries to speak to his men of state and wants to get a war started up. Let me set the scene for you that our text does. There have been three years of peace that have gone by. Three years of peace following that miraculous, in the very sense of the word, victory of Israel over Syria in 1 Kings 20. Not once, but twice, the Lord intervenes and grants Israel victory. And in those three years of peace, actually, Ahab has fought on the same side 
as the Syrian king Ben-Hadad against that larger empire that we've been talking about occasionally, Assyria. As a matter of fact, there's a large monument that's been found written by the Assyrian king in which he claims that Ahab of Israel sent the second largest force after the king of Syria in a coalition to oppose him. Well, three years of peace with Syria and even a cooperative military effort don't stop Ahab from thinking about something that he doesn't have, something he should have actually by rights. You remember the end of chapter 20, Ben-Hadad was supposed to give back all of the towns that his father had taken. Well, here's a shock and alarm for you. A pagan liar doesn't keep his word. I, I know it's hard to believe. But Ahab has actually shown some patience for Ahab. Three years he's waited. You can imagine he's probably stewing, sulking, kicking rocks, punching his pillow, whining to his wife. I don't have the cities they were supposed to give back to me. And she probably, in our sanctified imagination, says, well, do something about it. Be a man. You've got an army standing. You just were off the war against the Assyrians. Go, go after Syria now. They won't give it back to you. Go get it. And so he gathers up this army, make sure his southern flank is secure by getting a, an alliance with Judah. He actually secures that peace, and we're going to hear more about this later, by giving his daughter in marriage to the daughter of Jehoshaphat. They have a marriage alliance. We see where those kinds of things have led in the past. So, he has peace with Israel, and he's gathered up this army, and he comes up before his people, and he says, we need to go get Ramoth. After all, Syria hasn't kept its word. Now, lest you think Ahab has changed his mind, and now he has become someone who thinks strictly about what's fair and right, you need to be reminded that the reason that Ramoth Gilead is important is not because it's a town with an interesting name, or, or two names, but it's because it's a town that sits right next to one of the richest trade routes in the Middle East. And as one commentator has put it, it's not so good to have a toll road if you're not sitting in the toll booth. And so Ahab wants to sit in the toll booth and tax all of that trade that goes through there. You can imagine he's making himself miserable about every dollar that he doesn't get his hands on as it goes by. He's saying to himself, I deserve this. Have you ever pushed yourself to a course of action because of what you deserve? Maybe rightly, but sometimes maybe in a bit of a gray area. You do something that maybe you wouldn't ordinarily do under circumstances because you're so sure if you're in the right, it just has to work out right. God has to take your side because after all, you deserve it. That's kind of where Ahab is. And then we're introduced to a new king. You may not have noticed it, but we have been, meanwhile, back in Israel for several chapters. We haven't even talked about Judah since chapter 16. And there's a new king on the throne, the son of good king Asa. Jehoshaphat is a good king. We learn more about him in 2 Chronicles 17 and 18, and we'll learn a little bit more later about him. But basically... He's a good king, but he has a little bit of double-mindedness. You see, he made 
that treaty, or his father made that treaty with Syria. And now he comes in and he says, well, I guess I could break that treaty. I have another treaty with Ahab, so I can let this first treaty go by. I can break my promise. And he actually shows some gusto for the cause here. This is the first time we see kind of real cooperative spirit between Israel and Judah. He, he says this stark phrase. It's even starker in Hebrew. In Hebrew, it's actually this. Me, you. My people, your people. My horses, your horses. In a word, translated, yes, I'll go up to war with you. I'll unite myself to you as much as possible. But you see, he still retains enough wisdom to have a sneaking suspicion that not everything is okay. Because you see, after uh, he says that, he says, you know, I think we... Let's ask God first. Now, that would never have come into Ahab's mind. You could picture Ahab. Ahab's looking at his watch. Okay, all right, we'll ask God. And so, this is the scene. Let's go fight a war. And then, this request from Jehoshaphat brings us to the next scene that opens, which is, let's have a prophet show. Now, not a puppet show, although it's surprisingly similar. Let's have a prophet show. And so Ahab says, after Jehoshaphat says, let's go ask the Lord, he says, okay, sure, no problem. I've got prophets on staff. Hello, prophets. And they all come marching in. If this was some Broadway musical, they would sing as they were coming in. They all come in in order. They're cheery. They know exactly what Ahab's going to ask. They love to please the king. It's good to be the king. So they all come in, 400 of them. Now, what I want you not to think is, just because there's 400, don't think these are the same 400 that escaped um, Elijah's wrath. Those were prophets of Ashtoreth. These are prophets that at least claim to be prophets of the Lord. Now you say, well, wait a minute, isn't there Baal worship going on? Yes. But remember that the golden calves have not been destroyed. They're still there. You know, in Ahab's world, the more the merrier of religions. Just don't have an exclusive religion like one to the Lord. It's okay to worship the Lord as long as you get to worship Baal too. And so they trot in. They're likely a part of the bull cult. And they're prophets without a real call from God. They're prophets that just have taken upon themselves a call. Pays good, right? And you're important. The king looks to you. Other people listen to you. So why not? Hey, be a prophet. We might imagine that if they had had the internet back then, you could be a prophet of God for Ahab for only 1995. They'll send you a certificate. We see that today too, don't we? You could be a minister only by filling out a form and sending in 1995 and you'll get a perfect certificate and you can then marry people. The only problem is you won't have a real call. And you see, what they're going to do is they're going to usurp God's word. Now, before we're too quick to condemn them, let's think about our own hearts. Do we have occasion to usurp God's word? Do we want to put on a show of godliness and blunt the force thereof? Bringing our politics, bringing our social mores in, 
bringing our culture in and declaring it as thus said the Lord. You see, that temptation comes to us as well. So these are the prophets that are on staff. They come in and they are yes men to the extreme. Oh, sure, Ahab, go up. The Lord is going to bless you with a victory. Now, that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? It's very rational. Who wants to tell the king, especially a whiny, sulking, angry king who has a wife with a trigger finger? No. Well, plus also there's history. Last two times you fought, God was with you and he wiped them out. Why would God change sides? After all, the Syrians don't believe in God. They don't even have this great bull cult going on. They've got completely other gods. So makes a lot of sense. Sure, go up. God will be with you. How could God possibly be for the Syrians and against you? Right? Again, that's something that we can fall temptation to ourselves. Well, you know, so we haven't exactly experienced the best ethics. But it's not, God's not going to put the homosexual lobby ahead of us. He's not going to put the abortion providers ahead of his church. He couldn't possibly defeat us, delay us, chastise us. We're so much better than they are. We think that way. We have the same kind of disillusionment that these prophets do. Well, Jehoshaphat sees, and he's not really impressed by the song and dance show. He says, well, that's a nice musical, but is there anybody here? Is there anybody left who can speak for the Lord? And there's no love lost for this prophet, Micaiah, the son of Imla. Ahab says you can almost see him shake his head. Yeah, there's one. Micaiah, the son of Imla. Now think about that. You know this causes Ahab no degree of grief and consternation, right? There's one, and he says, I hate him. The Hebrew is very emphatic. I hate him. I can't stand the guy. But if we think about it in another vein, what a mercy of God. God sends his prophets, Ahab kills them. He sends Elijah, Ahab drives him out of town. He sends an unnamed prophet, Ahab doesn't listen. He pronounces judgment on Ahab, Ahab doesn't care. Yet there's still one prophet of God. There's still the word of God there to convict Ahab. God has not completely delivered him over to himself. What a merciful action by God. Do you sometimes feel that God's mercy is your misery? You wish that God didn't put that friend that keeps you accountable in your life. He'd just go on vacation and leave you alone. Or that woman that comes alongside you and encourages you, you just wish she would empathize with you and just get out of town, let you sulk. But you see, that's God's mercy. That's God's grace. He keeps his word in front of us. And it's interesting, there's kind of an attraction-hate relationship. It's not exactly love-hate, because Ahab does hear Micaiah. It's kind of like John the Baptist and Herod. You know, he heard him, he didn't really like it, but he heard him gladly. We hear in Mark. And the reason that Ahab doesn't like Micaiah is because Ahab is, a, is an outcome-based king. He figures that the prophet should be able to manipulate the message, and he wants good news. 
if you don't have good news, you must be a bad prophet. Who cares whether it's true or not? You've got to have good news. And Micaiah is not a man with good news. And then finally here we see Zedekiah comes out with a show. It's interesting, and maybe it's shocking to you, that he comes out with these horns, and he does it like a little play act. You can imagine he ma- makes these horns, and he comes out, and he's playing around, and everyone's... Ooh. And as, again, as one commentator says, you know, church is so fun when Zedekiah is there. He, he comes out, and he, he puts on this fun act. It's so fun. And, you know, you don't come up with horns on the spot. So Zedekiah already knows the answer he's going to give before Ahab asks the question. Of course you'll win. Wait, I know i got some horns around here somewhere. And he puts them on. He says, this is how you'll gore the king of Syria. But there's one thing that you need to know. When you get a chance this afternoon, flip to Deuteronomy 33, verse 17, and you'll find out that there's a prophecy of Moses that says that Joseph, through his sons, the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh, which are a part of which kingdom? The northern kingdom will gore the nations. Same word. So you see, Zedekiah isn't some crazy secular zealot. What he does is he takes biblical scriptural truth and he pretzels it and he says, here you go, good news, king. And everybody says, wow, I never saw that in the Bible before. That guy really knows his Bible. The only problem is he doesn't have a calling and he's manipulative. See, it's not always obvious when falsehood is placed before us. Sometimes falsehood is placed before us with a scriptural veneer. That's actually when it's most dangerous. Well, this is, these are the people who are unbelieving. It's all show to them. And in then comes the true messenger in verse 13. And the first thing we see about the true messenger is that he is bound by the word. You see, unlike the other prophets who bind the word themselves, they make the word say what they want it to say. The officer comes in, and you can imagine, he's walking Micaiah, and he says, hey, if you know what's good for you, the polling says 100% victory at Ramoth Gilead. It's a done deal. 400 yeses, zero noes, zero abstentions. So if you know what's good for you, Say yes. And Micaiah answers something that's very interesting. See, we, if we know the story already, we know he's going to say no, but he piques our interest. He says, as the Lord lives, whatever the Lord says, that's what I'll say. Lord says yes, I'll say yes. Lord says no, I'll say no. You see, he knows the true prophet can only say what God has given him to say. He can't make things up as he goes along, no matter how convenient, no matter how safe, no matter even his own personal protection. He's got to say what God has said. A friend of mine put it this way in terms of preaching as we think about it for ourselves. He said to me, he says, I don't care what you think. I don't care what I think. I care what God thinks. That's what I want to know. Is that what you want to know? Do you want to know what God thinks? Even if sometimes it's uncomfortable for you and for me. Even if we have to have an uncomfortable conversation. Because you see, that happens. It happens to pastors. You don't just need to be a prophet in Israel. It happens in the pastor's study, too. It happens in the elder's living room. Sometimes there are difficult conversations. You see, the pre- there's a lot of pressure here on Micaiah. The whole scene is laid out. Imagine it. 
The kings are there in all their robes. There's 400 prophets singing and dancing. There's a, there's a show going on with Zedekiah. And everybody's happy and it's, yeah, we're going to win. I mean, this is some pressure. This makes uncomfortable lunch with your boss seem like nothing. Right? There's a lot of pressure here to say yes. Have you ever felt pressure to compromise what you know to be the word of God because of the circumstances that you're in? If so, then God knows what you're going through. Micaiah knows. So this pressure is on Micaiah. Can't you just get along? And he says, well, I can't. I can only say what God says. And then something interesting happens. We're maybe thrown for a bit of a loop. They ask him, they say, Micaiah, shall we go up? And he answered, go up and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. And we're sitting there going, huh? And then two verses later, he says, well, no, you're going to get wiped out. We think, wait a minute here. Is, is Micaiah lying? And I think part of our trouble is, is that we can't hear the Bible. You see, this is, this is a, a scene that gets played out over and over and over again in Ahab's court. You, your clue here is the next phrase. The king said to him, how many times shall I, and it's actually a continuation, shall I make you keep on swearing to speak the truth? You see, this is a game that happens all the time. Ahab calls in Micaiah, even though he doesn't want what he's going to say. We already know he only says bad things from Ahab's viewpoint. And so he says, you know, should I uh, allow these two people to um, live in sin? Should I plunder the temple of the Lord? Should I go off to war? And Micaiah comes in and he goes, oh yeah, sure, go ahead. Yeah, all right. Okay. You can almost hear the sarcasm dripping. Yeah, go up. Good idea. And Ahab says, come on, tell me. And so then we go to the next scene in this little dance. And Micaiah says, all right, I'll tell you what. You want to know? Here. <laughs> Here it is. There you have it. You go up, you all get wiped out, you get killed. And then you know what? Then there's peace. There'll be peace, Ahab, when you're dead. That's when there'll be peace. You like that news better? And then Ahab, of course, turns and he says, You see? Only bad things. And we scratch our heads and we say, Well, it doesn't have to be bad things. You know, Ahab, you could, like, listen to the word of God and then it wouldn't be bad things. But Ahab is so curious to know the truth, he has to know the truth. And he's so used to hearing from yes men that he, he can't even get past that. He's like... There's some creatures in the third Narnia book. You know the book with the boat? Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And they're eventually named the Duffel Puds. And they're known for one thing. Their leader says something, and they agree. Their leader says, looks like it's going to rain. And they all in unison say, oh, worst rain ever, boss. Oh, it's going to rain all day long. going to rain like crazy. And then he says two seconds later, I think it's going to be sunny all day. Oh, the heat is bearing down on us, boss. It'll never rain. Not a drop of rain here. That's what Ahab's life is like. He's got yes men walking around, following him, telling him what he wants to hear. So when Micaiah tells him something that he doesn't want to hear, instead of hearing the word, he turns on the messenger. He turns on the messenger. And so then Micaiah, to make his point, gives us this little glimpse into the heavenly council, God's council of war. It's, the, it's another council of war parallel to Ahab's, 
against Syria, but it's God's counsel against Ahab. You're meant to see the contrast. And God tells Ahab through Micaiah that these prophets are lying. And they're lying because God has sovereignly declared it to be so, so that Ahab might be destroyed. God is showing himself as sovereign even in the actions of pagan prophets. Now, we might say to ourselves, wait a minute here. Why is God sending a lying spirit? Why is God lying? Why is God deceiving Ahab? Why is he trying to trick Ahab into doing something he wouldn't normally do? And the answer is twofold. No one has to ever convince Ahab to sin. He takes to it like a fish in water. We've seen that over and over again, haven't we? And the second thing that we can't lose sight of is God is not deceiving Ahab. He tells him the story before he makes the decision. Do you notice that? It's a means to put the word in front of Ahab. He doesn't deceive Ahab. He tells Ahab the punchline. He shows him what's going to happen. He reveals it to him. You see, the the deception here is not that God is trying to get Ahab to do the wrong thing. It's just that God is showing Ahab that Ahab views God's word as irrelevant. Irrelevant. You see, when all the prophets are saying, don't be afraid, Ahab, Micaiah says, no, be afraid. Be very afraid. Because God has decreed your destruction. You can't outsmart God. And then we see Micaiah suffer for the truth. We see him suffer for the truth. He suffers the unbelief of everyone around him. Ahab doesn't believe him. Jehoshaphat doesn't believe him. Because he still goes off to war. The king of Israel and the good king of Judah don't believe him. The people don't believe him. Now, that is suffering for the truth. Have you ever had that happen to you? Will you tell someone something that you know is true, whether it's a truth from God's word or just something that's happened that you know is true, and they don't believe you? That's painful, isn't it? That's very painful. You want them to, especially when you know, you don't just think, you know it's true. You see, it's not just God's prophets that suffer that way. You're in good standing. If you felt that. But it's not just that indignation. For telling the truth, Zedekiah comes up and punches him in the nose. And he says, Wapo! What do you think? How did the the Spirit of God get from me to you so fast? He's basically saying, I'm not lying, you're lying. I had the Spirit of God. I had the floor show to prove it. Where do you get off coming in here and telling me I don't know the truth? And so, Micaiah suffers that indignity. And then he's dragged off to jail. Not a very good day's work for a prophet. Makes getting fired seem pretty tame. Perhaps some of you have had that experience. Or being insulted. And so then the question comes, how do we know who's telling the truth? Zedekiah has his horns. He's got Deuteronomy 33. He's got 400 other prophets. Micaiah says he's speaking for the... They're both saying they speak for the Lord. How do we know? You see, 
The interesting thing is, Micaiah tells us how we know the truth. And you're not going to like this, because I don't particularly like it either. We know the truth when we see the result. We have to actually be patient and wait and see the result. How do we know that we're following God's truth for marriage? You don't see the result in 15 minutes. You have to wait and see how it bears out. How do we know that raising our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord really is the right thing to do? You don't find that out for 18 or 20 or 35 years sometimes, right? It's painful. You've got to wait and watch. And that's actually the main test of a prophet. Deuteronomy 18, verse 22 says, If the prophet prophesies and the word does not come to pass, then it is a word that the Lord has not spoken. And Micaiah is willing to leave it there. He doesn't raise an appeal. He, he says, you know what? If you come back alive, then I'm not a prophet of the Lord. Guess what? You're not going to come back alive. And then he says to the people, hey, listen up. Remember what I said. When the king comes back dead, you know who is prophesying the truth. Me or horn man. You know. This is the way that God's prophets prophesy. Perhaps those of you that are in Steve's class know that's how Micah begins his book. Exact same phrase. Listen now, hear people, hear all you people. This is what's going to come to pass. Because you see, Micaiah knows the truth of our third point. That God is sovereign. That he is a sovereign God. There's an old ditty that I think is applicable here. You may see I've divided up our points this way. Man proposes, but God disposes. You see, man has his plan, but it's really the plan of God that matters. And here everybody has a plan. Ahab has a plan. It's very interesting. Ahab, who is so sure that the 400 prophets are right, and so sure Micaiah is wrong that he throws him in the clink, says, you know what would be a good idea if I put on a disguise? Now, you should already know in the back of your mind, there somewhere should be a phrase that says, disguise, bad. Bad things happen when you have a disguise, right? Last time we saw a disguise, what happened? Bad things. Bad things. Saul disguised himself, bad things. But he says, I'm going to hedge my bets here. He basically says, I don't think God is true and right, but if he is, he's probably dumber than I am. I, I, I can outsmart him. I'll just put on some different clothes, Right? Now, when you say it that starkly, it sounds very foolish, doesn't it? It almost sounds unbiblical to throw it out that starkly. But isn't that what we do, too, when we try and manipulate God? When we put out false piety, or we play games, or put on pretend smiles, what we're basically saying is, you know, God's a little slow, and I could stay a couple of steps ahead of him. Is that your view of God? I hope not. Because that God's not worth serving. So Ahab has a plan. Jehoshaphat has a plan too, surprisingly. Now, there's only one way to say it here. Jehoshaphat is known as a good king, but here he has checked his brains at the door. He is just plain stupid. Because not only does he not listen to the prophet of God, now think about this. The prophet has just said 
Ahab, you're the king, you're going to get destroyed. And Ahab says, you know what? Um, I'm going to put on a disguise, but why don't you stay dressed like a king? And here, why don't you put this bright red bullseye on your back? And we'll have people walk around you and say, this is the king of Israel. I mean, what's Jehoshaphat thinking? Okay, I'll be the king. You see, this is what happens when you team up where you're not supposed to in a sinful endeavor. I've said this to you before. My friend, the great philosopher, says sin makes you stupid. And it does here for Jehoshaphat. He is sinning by not listening to the word of God through Micaiah, and God gives him over to stupidity. There's no other way around it. These two aren't the only two with plans. Because Ben-Hadad has a plan too, and his plan's a good one. He tells his archers and his charioteers, just go after the king. We get the king, the battle's over. And that's usually how things worked in that time, in that place. The people scatter. So they all think they have a plan. They all think that they're in charge. They all think they can do what they want to do, and they figured it all out. There's only one problem. None of them have counted on God, the one who's really in charge. Ahab thinks he can outsmart him. Jehoshaphat thinks he can ignore him. And Ben-Hadad thinks he doesn't matter. And we see that while man proposes, God actually disposes And he carries out his decree through this battle. Now, we cannot look at chapter 22 without remembering chapter 20 and 21, right? When God had told Ahab through the unnamed prophet, through Elijah, and then now also through Micaiah, you know what? I'm going to strike you down. And guess what? Surprise, God's right. God is in charge. God's decree does matter. He is the one that's in control of events. And he does it in a way that makes us again see not just that he's in charge, but how much he's in charge. Because how does Ahab get killed? He gets killed by a man at random, it says. And anytime the Bible uses that phrase, we're meant to take it tongue in cheek. It's like when Ruth goes out, she happens to happen into the field of Boaz? No. A man at random, and the language here doesn't mean that he took up a bow and shot it in the air, and it just zip found its way, magically. What it means is, some guy's an archer, and he says, well, there's Joe Israelite, I think I'll hit him. That's my job, I'm a soldier, I'm supposed to kill Israelites. Just so happens that, at random, that arrow finds its way and hits Ahab. Now, if you think Ahab isn't the most heavily armored tank on the battlefield, you're not thinking. He's got armor after armor, and the language is really specific. It finds its way in a seam between two pieces of armor. It's a million-to-one shot. No. It's a one-to-one shot with God. You see, God will have his plan take effect. Ben-Hadad's plan notwithstanding. Jehoshaphat's stupidity notwithstanding. Ahab's arrogance notwithstanding. God is the one who's in charge. We also see something else about God being in charge. Jehoshaphat is in this bad place because of his own bad decision-making skills. 
Here he is. He's the king, dressed up in kingly armor. The charioteers are surrounding him. His goose is cooked. And he cries out. And the parallel passage, which is almost identical with this passage, except for a few words, in 2 Chronicles 18 says, The Lord heard him and rescued him by making the charioteers go away. You see, God is in charge not just of punishing his enemies when they think they can get away with it. God is in charge of preserving his people even against their own foolishness. Why? Because Jehoshaphat deserved it? Because he was the king of Judah? Because he was better than Ahab? No. Because God had a purpose for Jehoshaphat. You see, it's God's purpose that matters. God carries out his decree. He preserves his people and he validates his word. Because all of this happens, we hear, according to the word of the Lord. And so this is a story that should lay out for you great hope. Because the same one that decrees the judgment of Ahab and cannot be counteraffected by any manipulation of state, king, or innocent soldier, that same one has a word just as sure to you of mercy and grace in Christ Jesus. You see, it's this kind of sovereignty that allows us to say neither height nor depth nor weight, nor famine, nor pestilence can separate us, what? From the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. That is the God who saves. Always watching. Always in control. Ahab didn't learn it. You, as the people of God, be encouraged by that. That God is found every day, in every way, in your lives, sovereignly. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the way in which you tell us this, these stories. That we might know that you truly are God. You are sovereign in every way. We pray, Lord, that you would remind us of that. That we might take true comfort from it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.
blessing, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forever. Amen.